All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and get started. So uh, we've got uh, we got delinquency going on here, but uh, we'll just we'll just start anyway. Let's see. <laughs> That's right, delinquency. Uh, all right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this uh, fantastic culmination that you gave us in uh, the Hall of Faith, and I pray that you'll help us really ingest it today and profit from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's the last Hall of Faith. Uh, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 12. I know chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith, but you know chapters in the Bible are arbitrary. They're, they're, not, they're not inspired. They're just for us, us to reference. And um, we do start here chapter 12 with therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So we have a, 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 a turning point here. What, what witnesses are we surrounded by? All the people, all the people we just talked about, right? And... Um, so, so we're going to have an application here, and we're going to introduce the ultimate hero. Last week we talked about the hopeful heroes being these people who actually ended up in the Hall of Faith. They were, they were faithful, they were, uh, they were uh, obedient, and they were also extremely flawed. Uh, a prostitute, a, uh, a coward, a wimp, and the, these guys are tremendously inspirational to me because it tells us anybody can step into God's plan of of uh, uh, instruction and say, I'll do that and put you into this uh, sonship, this inheritance to be trained. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, training and joy. That's the two themes for today, training and joy. So let's start with chapter 12 here. Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. Okay, so we've we got all these great witnesses. We've got um, Abel and we've got Noah. You know, Noah built an ark. God said, hey, the judgment's coming, and it's going to be something you can't even conceive of. Uh, some, you know, the whole world's going to be destroyed. There was no precedent for that. There'd been no, nothing like that that had ever happened before. God said, this is going to happen, so build an ark. And Noah said, okay. So a hundred years he builds an ark. And then God comes along and says uh, to Abraham, hey, leave your home. You're 75 years, I know, but uh, leave your home. I'll, I'll take you to a place where I'll make your name great, and I'll build you a nation. I'll bless all the families of the earth through you. And Abraham says, okay. Uh, so we've got these tremendous witnesses here that did what God asked them to do. And so the, the, the uh, conclusion there, the point is, okay, therefore, since you've got these witnesses... Take all the encumbrances that you have and set them aside. And what are those encumbrances? What does he tell us? Sin. Yeah, the sin that so easily ensnares us. So we got all this weight. So if you're going to run a race and you're going to run a... Ma- Actually, uh, Micah ran a half marathon yesterday, right, Micah? How, how much weight did you carry with you on the way? Did you take your 15-pound barbells along? And... Okay, well, why not? Why didn't you take your 15-pound barbell? Because it's hard enough without the weight. It's hard enough without the weight, right? 
Okay, so the, the picture here is you've got the guys at the starting line of this marathon, and you look over, and there's Travis, and he's got on his 80-pound backpack, and he's got his M1 in one hand, and you look at him, and what do you say? He, he's not going to make it, right? Yeah. So take that stuff off. Get, get rid of the weights. All this sin, it's all weights. Lay it aside. And lay aside the sin that, in, that so easily ensnares us and run. Now, who's ahead of you in the race? Yeah, all these people that went before us. Who else? Jesus, okay, so keep your eye on Jesus. Uh, let's go back to chapter 2 in, in the Hebrews. And uh, let's just take a look at Jesus uh, clearing the path for us there, how, how that's stated. So Jesus in chapter 2, uh, verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing... Many sons to glory. Now, there's the finish line. Okay? Many sons to glory. So it's the idea you got this race, and Jesus is out in front, and we're all behind. And what's his goal for us? Bring us with him. Bring us with him. Okay? He wants us to want to finish. To make the captain, or the, the, the leader, the inaugurator of their salvation. Remember this salvation here is from the sin that so easily ensnares us so we can run the race. These, this whole book's written to believers. So get us to get to the end and make it perfect through sufferings. That's the race. Did you suffer any yesterday, Micah? <laughs> okay. And you just have to get through it, right? That's the point of the race. So... Um, it's, it's the picture that comes all the way through the Scripture. Let's go back to 12 now. Who for the joy that was set before him? What was the joy set before you yesterday, Micah? Finishing. Yeah, how, how, how often did you think about the finish line? How long did it take you to run that thing? An hour and 45 minutes. Hour and 45 minutes. How much of the hour and 45 minutes did you think about the finish line? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, you really look forward to that, right? Well, the, so he had a joy that was set before him. And because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Now, what was the joy that was set before him? He despised the shame. Okay, we've, we've, we'll talk about that a little bit. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this doesn't seem to us like all that big of a deal. Now, I probably you probably were really happy to sit down after running that race, but I mean, just resting is not the point here. The point here is uh, that he sat down where he sat down. It's not that he got to sit down; it's where he sat down. Where is he sitting down? Right hand of the throne of God. Now, uh, in the very amusing and engaging story that Mark Twain wrote. Uh, uh, called The Prince and the Pauper. There's two young boys. Uh, one is a king. One is a, a street urchin. And they get switched. They, then they happen to look identical. And they get switched. And the street urchin is picked up and the court thinks he's the king. And he has no idea what's going on. Can't follow the protocol. Uh, is acting you know, completely outside himself. So they all decide... He's gone nuts and has amnesia, so they all start covering for him. 
The, the prince, on the other hand, is now a street urchin, and he's treating everyone like he's the king, ordering people around and so forth, and they all think the kid's nuts. And this one young sort of knight, this, this courageous uh, uh, young man who's a, a, a man-at-arms, kind of takes pity on the poor boy who thinks he's a king and decides to kind of go along with him and keep him out of trouble. So, uh, and he plays along with the, with the gag. So that when, when the kid sits to eat, he makes this guy stand. Why does he make him stand? He's in the presence of royalty, right? So the guy plays along and he stands. And one day, uh, the kid's in mortal danger and he's, he's saved. He, the, guy, the, the guy saves his life. That's why he came along in the first place. And so the young man says... Um, as your reward, I will grant you what, whatever you want in my kingdom. What do you want in my kingdom? And he says, to sit in the king's presence. And he says, it is granted. So at the end of the story, uh, of course, the kid, the, the switch is discovered and the pauper is reinstated as the king. And this young knight realizes, oh my gosh, he really is a king. He's not just nuts. And so right there in the middle of all these people that are, that are ceremoniously welcoming the king back, he pulls up a chair and sits down. And what happens in the crowd? Yeah, they all gasp because they know what's about to happen. What's going to happen? He's going to be drug off and his head chopped off. So the guards run over there to grab him and the king says, Stop. It's his hereditary right. Because you don't sit in the presence of a king. Only royalty. Only an inheritor sits in the presence of the king. Someone who's in the line. That's the only person that sits down. Well, Jesus is the firstborn. He's the first of the sons. He's the one that's gone in the race first. Because a son is someone who inherits. And we've all already been granted this sonship. The question is, are we going to possess it? We saw the example of the people who failed in the first part of Hebrews. They were given a possession, the land. And God said, it's yours, go take it. And they said, it's too hard. We can't do it. We're not going to obey. And so he said, okay. You lose it then. Wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Never mind. We'll go in and get it. No, it's too late. It's gone. You cross the the threshold. Which is why all through Hebrews we're told the time to run the race is when? Today. Today while you hear His voice. Do not disobey as they did in the wilderness. The bad example. And now we're given the good examples. Do like these guys. Even the hopeful heroes. A prostitute. A coward. It's never too late, no matter what our backgrounds are. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, focus in on that word joy. We're going to look at this word joy real quick. Because it is one of our two themes today. And this word joy is the Greek word uh, charis. 
look at a couple of uh, verses here. And let's look at, uh, well, let's see. Is this Chorus or, I mean, hang on, I may have messed up here. Hang on just a minute. Get my machine working. All right, looking unto endured the cross. Joy. Kara. Okay, Kara. So we got two Karas, C H A R A, and then we've got one Karas, C H A R I S. We're gonna, have, and they're gonna be a little bit different. So we've got Kara, that is joy. We've got Karas, that is going to be translated grace. And I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you that it's favor. Okay, so let's look at the three. Let's just look at these three words, and uh, I'll show you why I think this. Uh, the third application's favor, because this is what we're after, right? If if we're going to be running a race, we need to understand what the finish line is. So let's look at the finish line, the sitting down. And by the way, the three points for today. So we're going to have two themes and three points. The two themes are joy and training, and the three points are standing up, running. And sitting down. Okay, can you remember that? Sit, standing up, running, and sitting down. Okay, so we've already talked about running and we've talked about sitting down. Interestingly enough, this passage is going to have us standing up at the end. Okay, so for the joy set before him endured the cross. So we've got looking out at the finish line, and the joy set before us is to sit down. So the sitting down is at the end. The next time joy comes up is uh, verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, right? Um, so, uh, while you were running that race, Micah, was it fulfilling to have finished the race while you're running the race? Yeah, yeah, so you, you can't really do that, can you? You could, you could just stop and say, I'm finished. Would that give you the joy? Yeah, no, it's, that's not going to give you the joy, right? It's not, and, and did you train for the race? Yeah, and while you're training for the race, did you get the same kind of uh, 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 sort of pumped up feeling you got when you finished the race? It's kind of a grind to train the race, right? So no training seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Anybody, anybody understand painful for training? It seems painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So we get this benefit, joy, and we get righteousness because of the training. The third time that this word shows up, joy, is in verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now, I'm going to set this up so that when we read the whole passage, I think it will make complete sense to you. But this grace here, I think, would be better translated favor. Let's look at Luke one thirty. The first time that this shows up in the scripture, Luke one thirty. Uh, this word, Luke one chapter thirty. How come my? I'm punching the buttons. Oh, it just blew up. <laughs> Hang on, just a minute. I'm rebooting. <laughs> I, I touched the thing and it didn't go. All right, here we go. My iPad Bible here. Luke. 
one. Okay. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, or grace. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. We get our word charisma from this. What? Could be kindness as well. Could be kindness as well, okay. So favor with God, which is a good translation here. And I I think that's what we're talking about here is... um, don't lose that which give, God looks on as favorable. That, that's the whole thing. What, what was the initial point to Hebrews chapter 11? Without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. Well, this, whole, this whole chapter is about pleasing God. Uh, let's look at 240. Luke 240. Luke 2, chapter 40. And the child grew. This is just talking about uh, Jesus. And became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, this is not saving grace, is it? Well, one of the problems we have with the word grace is we, we've been taught the word grace means what? Unmerited favor, right? Um, did Jesus have unmerited favor heaped upon him so that he could, instead of not go to hell? See, it's a it's a contextual word. Sometimes it means that when it's grace applied to justification, that's exactly what it means because it's just given. But when it's applied in a context where you know we're doing something, it's it's favor, and sometimes it's deserved or not deserved. Two fifty two, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor, charis, with God and men. Uh, And just one more. It's kind of a beat on this horse, dead horse a little bit. Uh, 6.32. 6.32. Jesus speaking. But if you love those who love you, what? Chorus. Is that for you? It's good translated credit. What favor do you get from that? What's got... Is God going to approve that and say, Wow, that's really amazing that you were nice to someone who was doing something for you. Well, no, not really. Anybody does that. That's the point. Okay? So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. And let me cover one other point. And then we will stand up, run, and sit down. Except my machine is boycotting me. Man, I don't I can't read your phone, I don't think, can I? Can I? I know I need I'm, I might need a I might need an actual something with paper. Let me reboot again here. Okay, Hebrews chapter twelve. Go to oh, no and reboot. Wow. I've got all my stuff highlighted in here is the problem. I, I'm, uh, I'm dependent. Let me see here. I apologize for the delay. Try not to flip anymore. I'll just have you read it to me. Ah, I'm back. Let me go through one more word. Can you look through here and see the word chastening? Can just where your eye fall on the word? Does he, do you see it? Does it pop out at you? Just in the chapter, does it pop out? Let me just show you. Verse, verse 5. What is it? 
6, yeah, 6. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. What son is there? The father does not chasten. Verse 8, but if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate, not sons. Therefore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. Same word. And we paid them respect, shall we not much more readily subjection to the Father and spirits and live? For they indeed, for a few days, chasten us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. What do you think a main point of this is? Okay. Let's look at this word, chastening. Does anybody know what this word is, by the way? It's the Greek word... Well, the root of it, it's got, you know, different tenses, but the root of it is paideo. Does that ring a bell with anyone? <coughs> paideo. We get an English word from this word. Yes? Yeah, that's right. What, what English word sounds like paideo? Pedagogy. Okay, pedagogy. It's a word you use probably every day, huh? Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. <coughs> Training. Okay? So let me give you some... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to touch this thing anymore. I'm going to let you read it. So go to Luke 23, 6. And we're going to see some pedagogy. There's two different sort of general applications of pedagogy... Uh, pe- I'm sorry, padeo. Let's look at Luke 23, 6. Somebody read Luke 23, 6 for me. You Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. Am I in the right spot? Likes Luke 23.6? I'm really doing all the good today, aren't I? How about 23.22? What does that say? Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Okay. And in that context, what was the chastisement? They were going to whip him. Yeah. In the first one that I'm I'm apparently messed up, 23.6, somewhere in there, it says, I will therefore, what? Oh, 23.16? What is 23.16? Okay. What they're going to do is they're going to whip him. So, the, 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 and I'll give you another example where that same kind of application is. First, First Timothy 1.20. Look at First Timothy 1.20 and tell me what that one says. First Timothy 1.20. Who's got that? You got it, James? Can you go with the words? Of whom are... Yeah. And Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to be, not to be, not to blaspheme. Okay. So I've delivered Hymenaeus and whoever the other guys is over to Satan, so they can what? Learn. learn. Be taught. Okay. So here's a context where the teaching is kind of like, kind of like in the context we would say, where let's say that uh, uh, Travis and I uh, get in a car wreck. And I get out and I say, are, are, are you just too stupid to see what was going on there? And Travis says to me, well, you pulled out in front of me. And I say, 
well, I, I, what do you mean I pulled out in front of you? And we start a big argument, and then Travis says, well, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Okay, well, what's, it, what's he about to do? Yeah, okay, so that's one kind of teaching, right? Uh, or, or another context is like uh, you come back to the huddle in football or whatever and say, that guy's been grabbing me, he's been holding me all day. And the other guy says, well, we'll teach him. I'm going to double this guy up. I go low, you go high. Right? It's, it's, it's teaching. Okay? So this is one general application of paideia. We use it this way too. Um, the other application is more uh, kind of what? The classroom application. Let's look at Acts 7.22. Acts chapter 7, verse 22. You got that one, Trav? And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Okay, so Moses was Padeo. So how did Moses get all that education? Yeah, he probably went to, uh, you know, uh, Egyptian Ivy League school. Probably went to, probably had a tutor and... Uh, you know, went to uh, finishing school and all that kind of stuff to be a general. I mean, he was in the Pharaoh's training program, right? It's the best, best pedagogy you could have in, that, in, in Egypt. So it's, it's the same idea. You're learning, but there's a lot of different ways to learn, right? There's classroom learning. There is... Take athletics. Wally, you, you, had, you had two different kinds of learning in basketball, didn't you? Two really distinct different kinds. One was on the court. What, what, did you, what was the other kind? Uh, film. film room. Yeah, so you're going to the film room and you're watching and they're saying, well, you should do this and you shouldn't do that. Uh, so there's, and, and when you're out on the court, uh, what kind of uh, sort of general uh, instructions did you get? Can you give us some that are repeatable in mixed company? Uh, no. Let me, give, me, give me an impersonation of how Grant would say that to you. Dive on the floor, boys. You <laughs> would actually say something like, I'm a small white guy, and I'd get on the floor and get <laughs> except, he didn't, except he didn't pull his voice back like you just did. Right? <laughs> We're paideaing here, all right? Let's look at 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. We're getting educated. We're getting trained. We got we got to win a game. We got we got a we got a military campaign to do. We got a we got a kingdom to run. We got a, a lesson to learn. What you got? In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. All right. So if you're a pastor and you got somebody that's that's not obeying the truth, that's teaching wrong things, that's saying wrong things, that's leading in your church the wrong way, what do you do? In humility, you go and paideia them. Okay? This has an element of both, doesn't it? It is scourging, but gently. Because what are you trying to do? You're trying to deliver them from the wiles of Satan. Because Satan is the father of lies, and if you're following something that's true, then you're following Satan, not Jesus. Okay? So, 
now let's go through and read this, this, uh, this passage. And I want you to think about joy, favor. Okay, you get to the end and you hear, way to go! You finished! You're awesome! I, this is what I wanted for you. You made it. I'm going to put you in the Hall of Fame. I'm so happy. You pleased me because you did what I asked you to do. Joy set before you. And let's think about and what, and the sitting down. Because Jesus said, the ultimate reward is what? I want you to sit on my throne with me. Sitting down. And then look, think about running. Okay, You can't get to the finish line unless you run. And then... We're, We'll talk about standing up when we get to the end. Okay? And oh, sorry, sorry. And also think about training, learning as you go. So, therefore, also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. For consider him who endured such hostility for sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You've not yet resisted the bloodshed, Striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as son. Quote from the Old Testament. My son, do not despise the paideia of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For when the Lord loves, he teaches. He coaches. He mentors. He trains. He educates. If you endure education... God deals with you as with sons, inheritors. For what son is there who a father does not train? But if you're without training, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate, not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, trained us, chastised us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days educated us, trained us, paideaed us. As it seemed best to them. But He for our profit, He knows what's best for us. That we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, no education, training, learning seems to be joyful for the present. Where's the joy? Present? Set before us. But painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me just stop for a minute. This word trained is a fascinating word. Anybody have an idea what this word is? Can you give a guess? We're in a race. Training for a race. Any, any guess? Gymnazo. You start to get the picture here? Okay. If we're going to run a marathon, where do we need to be? 
In the gymnazo. Why do we need to be in the gymnazo? We need to get we need to get some strength so we can run. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down. And the feeble knees. Where do you do that? In the gymnazo. Okay? We need to run this. Get strong. <clears throat> Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Now we ha- happen to have a phenomenal example in here with us today. Because we have someone with a really bad knee who's under rehab. Now when, when Wally starts to be able to uh, train... Is he going to go out on a place that's bumpy with rocks and sand in order to get that knee well? No. No, he's not. Why? It's weak. Yeah, all you're going to do is dislocate it, right? Where's he going to train? In the gymnasio, in a controlled environment, on a treadmill maybe, or certainly on a straight path. Okay? Uh, Remember, these guys that Paul's talking to here were starting to get hard of hearing. They were starting to lose sight of what their whole walk was about. And what he's saying here is, we got a race to run. So what's the first thing you do when you're going to run a race? Well, right before you train, what do you got to do? you got to get off the couch. Okay? Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down feel the knees. Make straight paths for you. Get up! One of the translations I looked at here said, uh, instead of uh, strengthen the hands, it said raise up the hands. Stand up. Get off the couch. Get in the race. Get started. And follow Jesus who's ahead of you. It's all about training. It's education. Yeah? Active, not a passive thing. Yeah, this is not a. We're here. We're here all just learning. We're in the film room. But what percentage of your total practice did you spend in the film room versus on the court? Half and half? No kidding. Well, towards the end, it was even more. Probably, the beginning it was like twenty-five percent. Twenty-five percent. You know, what well, we, we, we do need to understand what's going on to, in order to play the game, absolutely. But the, really, the goal is to play the game. Well, the reason why we're in here... What, go ahead. Yeah, that's our film room, yeah. The reason why we're in here is to get prepared for out there. Because we want to get up and run, walk, and, and, and we want to finish. Now, all this is about training. And what is it that we're having to overcome to train? It is despising the shame. Gravity, yeah. Yeah, he despised the shame. He overcame sin. Jesus overcame sin, even to bloodshed. So, we we looked at, when we looked at Moses, we looked and said Moses (coughs) chose, instead of the uh, power of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, a son of Pharaoh's daughter, instead of the riches of Egypt, 
Instead of the pleasures of Egypt, where sexual immorality was rampant, and he would have had it all available to him, he chose his people and the reproaches of Christ. We did a whole lesson on this. And we looked at what the reproaches of Christ were. And Christ was reproached by his family. And he was reproached by his friends. And he was reproached by his followers. And he was reproached by the authorities. And he was reproached by the crowd. And he was reproached by the religious leaders. And he overcame all that. So, let's just get to some practical application now of training. Uh, if, you, if we have children, I hope that what we'll understand is our goal as parents is not to make them comfortable. That's their goal, is to be comfortable. And they're most comfortable when, when you as a parent are doing their bidding. And that is not the way good parenting works. Good parenting has a goal at the end. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. The ability to make good decisions. Now they may or may not make good decisions. That's up to them. But if we will train them in the ability to have the ability to make good decisions, we're being good parents. And it's not comfortable, it's painful going through that. Because children want the world to revolve around them. Well, we're, we're, it says in here, we, we do the best we can, but we're not very good parents. I mean, that's, that's what this chapter says. Compared to God, who's the perfect parent. And He knows exactly what He's doing. We think, we, we just do the best we can. He knows the hearts and intents. He knows the future. He knows all things. He knows exactly what we need. We're doing the best we can to profit our children. He absolutely is giving us what there is to profit us. And what He gives us is trouble. So what reproaches are we going to overcome? Well, maybe you have a reproach from your spouse. It's just theoretically possible. Maybe your spouse, maybe your uh, wife is unlovable. And you can talk to your friends and they will tell you you have every right to not love your wife. What, and what does Jesus tell us to do with our wives, guys? Love her how? Yeah, like Christ loved the church and gave himself. And to wash her with the washing of the word. So not only do you have to love your wife sacrificially according to Jesus, you have to talk to her. Which one of those two is most painful? (laughs) And you have to tell her the truth. All your friends would back you in not doing that. It's not pleasurable. It's painful. It's training. This is gymnazo. Okay? You're getting your muscles ready to run. This is running the race. Maybe your husband. It's just not a respectable behavior right now. You can, you, all your friends would tell you that what your husband's doing demands no respect. And not only that, he's just not worthy of being trusted. He made a mistake last week. Everybody knew it was a mistake, so you shouldn't trust him anymore. You just need to take control and do this yourself. And all your friends will back you. And what does Jesus say to do, ladies, with your husband? Respect them on the basis of 
that Jesus asked you to, right? And defer. Defer. Do everything you can to follow His leadership. It's not easy. It's painful. You know better. If you could just control your husband, everything would be okay, right? It's hard. It's training. This this is how you get to the finish line and hear God say, You were awesome. Your husband is an idiot. (laughs) And you did exactly what I asked you to do. I'm going to work him over real good. You want to watch? Maybe you have a problem with friends. You have a friend that stabbed you in the back. A friend that gossiped about you. A friend that has betrayed you. And it would be perfectly understandable for you to be bitter. As a matter of fact, your friends will help you be bitter. And they will help you start a war with that person and start another gossip chain to counter their gossip chain so you've got a complete war. And it'll make you feel a lot better. And you're completely justified. Well, let's just go on in our verses here. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. You can't see the Lord while you're bitter. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the chorus, the favor of God. You can't please God while you're being bitter. You can't please God while you're creating division and destruction. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Jesus wants us to love other people. It's painful to do so. Amen to that? (laughs) It's not joyous to love other people much of the time. It's training. It's becoming a hero. Maybe we're going from prostitute to hero. Maybe we're going from coward to hero. We can, we, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Maybe an authority or someone at church has betrayed you. Has... Uh, taken a responsibility away from you, has uh, criticized you unfairly. Everybody would support you. All your friends would support you in, in just showing them and disengaging. Showing them and, and uh, telling them off or whatever. Well, we can do that. But bitterness defiles. Verse 16. Don't let there be a fornicator, someone who goes after their own pleasure instead of pleasing God. Or a profane person like Esau. Esau had a birthright. He was the oldest, firstborn. Now remember, birthright means you take over the family business. You're the ruler. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Did that bowl of stew taste good when he ate it? Yes. And how long before he was hungry again? Not very long, right? 
So this is profanity. Profanity is taking something amazing that God's given us and giving it no value. And then he realized it afterwards and it was too late. There is a point past which repentance is not possible. Hebrews 6 told us that. Not to get into heaven, but to inherit the blessing. Uh, Romans 1 tells us this. The wrath of God is poured out um, on, on, on us who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it's poured out by giving us over. God gives us over to our lust. And then He gives us over to addiction to our lust. And then He gives us over where we can't even think straight anymore. And I would propose to you on that third one, the opportunity for reforms past. You can't even think straight anymore. He wanted to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. And he found no price for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It's just a really extreme alternative that we have. We can either run the race painfully, get up off the couch, go to the gym, go through all that pain, and run all the way to the end. Or we can lose the inheritance. It's a real stark choice. And what we get with the inheritance is the peaceable fruit of righteousness to go with it. So it's not just a reward at the end. It's a reward where we can see God in our daily life as well. So Hebrews, I hope you've enjoyed the study. I hope you've enjoyed the uh, understanding of the Jewish perspective. I hope you've understand this whole sonship, a better son with a better inheritance and a better, admin, uh, better administration and a better world. And uh, this, this priestly function that we have, a better priest with a better sacrifice, with a better covenant, one that's written on our heart. These really stark examples of people that had the inheritance in hand and just frittered it away. Esau, children wandering in the wilderness. And these amazing guys that saw judgment ahead, avoided it, saw benefit ahead way far off. They knew it wouldn't be in their lifetime. And they obeyed because they they sought a city that was bigger than the city they lived in. And then ultimately Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who has already run the race for us and is up there saying, Go on! Come on! You can do it, guys! Keep going! No, I'm not going to let you quit! Because you're not finished. I want you to graduate. I want you to be here with me. And you need to learn. You need to understand. Yeah, turn that other cheek. Yeah! Way to go! Love that unlovable person. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Keep going. Oh, oh. God, you're going to defile a lot of people if you do that. Don't bit root of bitterness. No, don't do it. Don't do it. You can do it. It's really a pretty cool picture. God, thank you for this amazing exhortation that you've given us, this amazing example. Pray, Lord, that we get up off the couch in all the areas we're on the couch. We will go to the gym in all the areas where we're weak. And we will run with endurance on a daily basis. All these things we learn at church, we'll put them into practice out in the field. All the things we learn in our scriptural study and in our conversations with one another in prayer with you we'll put them into practice and I pray Lord every person in this room finish the race 
And here, well done. I am really proud of you for making it to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm planning to start the history of the future next week.